On Monday, July 27th, 2020, I conducted a series of live streaming interviews to discuss voting rights, voter suppression, and the upcoming 2020 election. This was one of those interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking to Jacqueline de Leon. Jacqueline de Leon is an enrolled member of the Isleta Pueblo. As a staff attorney at the Native American Rights Fund, better known as NARF, she helps lead field hearings across Indian country on Native American voting rights and practices ongoing voting rights litigation. How are you? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm so happy to, to see you, and this background is gorgeous. You're in Arizona, correct? No, no, I'm in California right now, but I'm usually working out of Boulder, but I'm in California right now. Okay, okay, well, wow, it's really beautiful. I, I think the viewer is going to appreciate the setting that you brought oh. to us, so thank you. I'm just, just hiding out from my kids, that's the big... Oh. <laughs> That's okay. And if your kids run out, we don't have a problem with kids uh, coming into interviews. It's all good. Good, good. Well, so I want to thank you so much for joining. Would you mind telling us your name and your association? And then I will tell them why, what we're talking about after you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Jacqueline DeLeon. I'm a staff attorney with the Native American Rights Fund. Okay. And one of the reasons I'm so thrilled to talk to you is you all just did probably the most comprehensive study I've ever seen, I'm sure anyone's ever seen, um, about uh, Native American voting obstacles. It's entitled Obstacles at Every Turn, Barriers to Political Participation Faced by Native American Voters. I did not get to read all 178 pages of it. I did get through quite a bit of it. Um, it was enlightening and depressing all at the same time, but absolutely essential. So if you could tell me, um, what was, when did you all decide to commission this report? What was behind it and why this year? Was it because of the year? No, it actually, it was good timing in that regard, but it wasn't the impetus. Um, so NARF is the nation's largest and oldest nonprofit dedicated to advancing the rights of Native Americans. And we see voter engagement as a core um, a tenant of what we try to do, which is, uh, you know, uh, promoting sovereignty, tribal sovereignty, and civic engagement. And um, so we as an organization asked the question, why is it that Native Americans are voting at such disproportionately low rates? And we saw there wasn't much out there uh, in terms of research. And so in 2015, NARF created the Native American Voting Rights Coalition, which is a group of um, organizations, like-minded organizations dedicated to advancing the rights of Native Americans. So uh, NCAI, the National Congress of American Indians is a member. Um, we also have regional organizations dedicated to get out the vote. Uh, other national organizations like ACLU, Lawyers Committee, um, that are you know full of litigators, um, academics, really just anybody that uh, was dedicated to this field in some capacity uh, to sort of ask those questions. Why is it that Native Americans aren't voting and what can we do about it? And so in 2017, not, uh, the coalition conducted the largest survey that had ever been conducted um, asking voter questions. Um, so to, tri to tribal members in New Mexico, South Dakota, Nevada, 
um, and Arizona, you know, why is it that you're not voting? And we got kind of a pre preliminary preview into what these barriers were, but we didn't think it was enough. And so um, I joined NARF in 2017 and um, co-led uh, a series of nine field hearings through Indian country to ask this question, why is it that Native Americans aren't voting? And we had over 125 witnesses. Um, we had, uh, you know, really just in-depth um, uh, answers from across the country and then spent the next, after those two years of field hearings, spent a year writing that report. Um, and then it came out um, about, uh, what's the day is it today? Uh, two months ago. 27th, um, yes. Yes, <laughs> it, finally, it finally came out about two months ago and uh, just in time for the elections. Um, but really, I think, uh, has been a, a long, deep-rooted effort. So you talk about, um, in the findings of the report, I want to uh, get into, you talk, it says in there, and I quote, to face a white, says Native Americans uh, face a wide variety of first-generation barriers. What are some of those first-generation barriers, and what do you mean yeah. by that terminology? Yeah, so I think we think of voting uh, suppression these days as kind of this uh, sophisticated effort that has to do with redistricting or has to do with the way that, you know, people are, are placed into different districts and that sort of thing. I'm talking about access to the ballot box. So right now we have problems with it just being inaccessible for people to go and vote, right? So it's just unreasonably far uh, to travel uh, to the ballot box on a dirt road in November, um, meaning that people just can't get there. Um, you know, the limited hours of these uh, polling locations um, that are available on Indian lands, if they are at all, uh, compared to um, uh, off-reservation sites, just means that Native Americans have a narrow and difficult window to physically cast their ballot, um, not to mention all the problems, uh, you know, which is a whole other topic, in vote by mail, which is physically mm -hmm. impossible for many Native Americans to do as well. Um, so Native Americans still have trouble exercising their right to vote because it's very hard to do so. Well, I will say this, I'm from New Mexico, from Albuquerque, so I know dirt roads. People don't know what dirt roads are. <laughs> they exist, and uh, so I'm, I'm glad you discussed that. So. Um, I also, could you just, before I go to the next question, would you please explain the addresses? Why is it difficult to mail ballots to addresses or lack thereof? Yeah, so I think this has to do with the fact that when you're thinking about Indian country, it's got to be an entirely different lens that you're looking at this. You know, so it's, you got to take your own experiences and kind of, if you're not from an, a native area and throw them out the window and realize that this is an incredibly rural area, meaning houses don't have addresses on them. Or if they are in a, uh, if they do have an address, they may not be marked on the home. So, you know, a, a clerk might say, oh yeah, we've addressed all those houses out there. And then they'll say, well, has anybody told the people that live out there? Well, no. And then do they have any mail delivery? Does the post office or the emergency services interact with those addresses at all? No. So, you know, people say, well, then what do you do when you call 911? How do they get to your house? Well, exactly. There's a disparity in those services, and there's a disparity in the way that Native Americans are um, 
you know, accessing, I think, mail, which I think is the big takeaway for uh, elections. So since they're not getting mail delivered to their home, they're not going to have this safe COVID option of, right. of, of voting from your safely from your home and just putting that piece of mail out your in your mailbox and having it whisked away to the to the clerk's office, that's not gonna exist for Native Americans. So they're gonna have to travel uh, to a post office that's 40 miles away, again, on these dirt roads, um, that's open from you know nine to 12 on a Tuesday, cause it's a rural post office. Um, and then when they actually uh, have to pick up the ballot, they also have to make that trip to drop off the ballot, right? So the same kind of uh, burdens are amplified. They're going to have to probably interact with somebody in the post office uh, if you know the, if you know they have don't have a key to get in there, and then those post office boxes are limited in number, so ten to fifteen people are sharing them, um, mm -hmm. meaning that mail gets lost uh, all the time because uh, you know ten to fifteen people are picking up mail at a time out of one location, um, and so it's just a really uh, precarious situation um, to vote by mail. Addressing makes it hard. And then it also makes it hard to register to vote if you don't have a consistent right. address that you can pull on just to fill out that form. Uh, instead, you have to sort of describe your house in a little map, which um, some states make it really difficult to exercise this option, even though it's mandatory to have that mm. map option. It's still kind of difficult to access. And so uh, people have a hard time filling out you know, where they actually live and then they have a hard time getting processed in the system. So they're more likely to get purged from the voter rolls. So it's just issue upon issue <laughs> that keeps me from, from voting. But I want people to understand these obstacles because COVID does bring in new challenges. Has there been discussions, have you heard, um, for what's going to happen in, in 99 days for, for the election? Um, is there early voting? Uh, have, what what options have been discussed? Are there any solutions or is it just, this is going to be really tough. This is what we're doing. We're driving 40, 40 to 50 miles. This is the only option. I would love so, it's a bit of a nightmare out there. Um, I'm not going to lie. Uh, it's yeah. a scary time. Um, it's scary because, so we right now are kind of doing this really big push against, and, and sometimes this uh, gets the, uh, defensiveness of some of our some progressive allies right people that care about getting out to vote a lot of times say well let's just move to vote by mail let's move to vote by mail vote by mail increases right. voter turnout and we have to yeah. say wait 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 mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't work full stop in native communities and so we can't move to we are all for increased vote by mail if you want to exercise that option if you can exercise that option you absolutely should be able to do no excuse everything right but we can't have it be the only option because it's just not possible in many Native American communities. So we have to maintain that in-person voting option so that people can drive if they want to and exercise their right to vote on election day. And you know, the battle we thought we were gonna be having you know, before COVID world was getting those physical polling locations closer into like a more just place and now we're just fighting to keep those polling places open and okay. so that's kind of the battle that we're at right now is trying to make sure that Native Americans will have the ability no matter how difficult it is to cast their ballot. 
I had spoken to Rebecca Coakley earlier. She's a disability activist. You're kind of paralleling some things that she says. I think people are looking for simple solutions. So when the, for the disability community, when people say we should just have a voting be a national holiday, it actually harms disability communities financially to do that. There's also less access because you're going to have bus drivers that have the day off. You have this. So thank you for talking about why this one solution does not fit all. And I think this is going to be new information for people. I want to get into a little bit of history with, with um, uh, native voting and native rights. I would love to know um, what was the 1924 Indian Citizenship Act? What did it do and not do in the way of voting rights for Native Americans? Sure. So, um, you know, a lot of times you hear, you know, the 19th Amendment, uh, you know, rights to vote and, you know, the, the, the idea of like expansion and, and all of these kind of uh, rights that existed um, before the 1924 Citizenship Act. They all didn't apply to Native Americans, right? 14th Amendment, 19th Amendment, none of this applied. 15th Amendment, none of it applied to um, Native Americans. Uh, because Native Americans weren't considered citizens until the 1924 um, Citizenship Act. And so at that point, you know, citizenship was conferred uh, universally upon Native Americans. Um, and so in theory, right, at that point, Native Americans should have joined the body politic. Everybody should have had the right to vote. And, you know, you would have been integrated into American society as American citizens. Um, we did not see that happen. And the reason is, is that states, uh, just like all of our, you know, um, uh, friends, uh, uh, African-Americans, um, other uh, minority groups were kept from the ballot box through state actions, right? So uh, states likewise um, kept Native Americans from accessing the ballot box, either through language requirements or literacy tests, all those kind of things um, hurt Native Americans. But then there were also pointed state actions designed to keep Native Americans from accessing the ballot box. So, mm -hmm. for example, uh, it's kind of a, a weird thing, but the construct of Native American um, law is derived from the, these old cases from the Supreme Court. And in one of those cases, um, one of the justices likened the relationship between tribes and um, the United States as like, as the, and the federal government as a ward to its guardian, right? So the, the federal government was thought of as the guardian to these Native American uh, nations, right? Um, and so in that way, Native Americans retained sovereignty, right? But the federal government basically is what was still had this, you know, guardianship role over Native Americans. And states use that language to say that Native Americans were incompetent to vote, right? So that's like an incredibly offensive interpretation, right? I mean, not just offensive, it's degrading, dehumanizing, all of those things, right? So you would go as a Native American to go cast your vote and somebody would say, well, you're incompetent. You can't, you're not human enough to vote. And, uh, or, you know, your, your diminished mental state makes you incompetent. And they even went a step farther in some states, like, for example, North Dakota had in its constitution that you had to be civilized to vote. And so, you know, um, in response to that, Native Americans, for example, would have to renounce their tribal citizenship in order to vote, say that they were civilized in order to vote. And those kind of attitudes, um, you know, maintained and, and states maintained those through the 50s. And so that kind of, you know, 40s and 50s, they still had 
those types of attitudes towards Native Americans and fought against the inclusion of Native Americans. And so all of those attitudes are very much alive in the consciousness of our elders who say, don't participate in that system. That system you know, is antithetical to Native American sovereignty. It's not, right? It's not because Native Americans, the best way to protect your sovereignty is to get the political power that you're due and right. you know, vote the type of people in that recognize Native American sovereignty. Um, mm. at, you know, in the same way that states can be sovereign and also part of the American system, tribes can be sovereign and be part of the American system. And so you know, if you vote people in that understand that paradigm, then you're protecting Native American sovereignty. Um, but through no fault, I think, of our elders, they've been indoctrinated to think that there's a conflict there. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a, a thought that goes through Black communities as well, that the government doesn't serve our interests well, that they've harmed us, and so we might as well just not vote. And um, uh, Colin Kaepernick, uh, I admire what he's done in civil rights, but he didn't vote last time. And so and it's because there is a mindset that this is antithetical to moving forward. But I'm very glad that you said that because I agree, this is a part of how we're going to have protections, how we're going to expand rights. Now, um, one of the things that the, the report talked about, and I talked about it earlier today um, with uh, Julie Lee, who specializes in language provisions, and she talked about it with the AAPI community, which is also part indigenous, right? Um, but I want to talk about Section 203 uh, and the, the Voting Rights Act as it pertains to um, Native Americans voting. If you could talk to us a little bit about how that provision impacted Native voters and, and what still needs to happen. Yeah, so Section 203 is a critical uh, provision of the Voting Rights Act that says, you know, if there are certain percentages of um, uh, non-English proficient um, speakers in a certain area, uh, then you have to provide language access which you know, is a pretty comprehensive requirement, right? You have to have poll workers that are able to explain ballot materials. Ballot materials have to be translated. Um, and those types of, you know, so basically somebody has to be able to show up and have um, the ballot explained to them in terms that they can understand, right? right. Um, and Native American communities um, have a significant language um, minority speakers, uh, which, you know, is news to them, as obviously they've been speaking these languages for <laughs> uh, right. millennia on, uh, you know, Native land. And so uh, it makes sense that, that, that Native Americans um, should be able to access the ballot box um, with, uh, with language, in the language that they understand. And so there are certain states um, and certain counties that are obligated to provide this assistance. And that extends uh, pretty extensively to some uh, Native American uh, areas. So, you know, uh, in Arizona, in Alaska, uh, some parts of South Dakota, um, there, are, there are spots all over the country. There used to be more, but honestly, a whole different conversation for a different way, day is that the Native Americans have been undercounted in the census. And therefore, right. you know, some of their designations, Section 203 designations went away uh, even though there mm. aren't significant language pockets out there of, of uh, people that, that should still have access under, you know, two or three provisions. But in any event, today, um, these, these language provisions are necessary um, for people to be able to go in and cast their ballot. And uh, mm. again, during COVID times, uh, it's especially true 
that the written materials um, become uh, translated and are translated, um, and that all co costs money. Oh, and I should also so, say that there are some native languages that cannot be written, uh, and those people uh, have to, uh, you know, employ those 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 areas have to employ native speakers to be available uh, by phone or in person uh, to make those translations. So one thing that Julie uh, Lee uh, Marseth said, and I didn't know this, that there's a certain amount of people that need to be um, to speak a language for it to be under that. So you did touch on that a little bit, that they lost some of their designation. Um, <laughs> this seems cruel to me. Um, how, so what, where do you want to see, where do you want to see improvements on that? I, obviously the current administration is not interested in that. That is not the kind of conversation that they want to have. If there is a different administration, what would you want to see um, implemented or expanded about the language provision? Well, I think consultation with communities is key, right? I mean, I think that there are requirements under the Language 203 Act, and then there are there's the ability for people to provide translations regardless of any formal designation, right? Uh, serving yeah. your constituency should be the foremost goal of any election official. And so understanding the community that you're serving also means taking into account what language they're speaking. So, right. um, you know, I think that it should be any goal of any administration to stress to uh, the people on the ground that they have an obligation uh, to include language access as part of their um, their efforts. You there? You listed a host of ways in the, in the report. There, there's a list of a host of ways of how. Uh, Native voters are subject to voter suppression. And one of them is something that usually happens to black voters, it happens to Latinx voters as well, and that's packing and cracking. Um, would you mind explaining that terminology? I have put it on Twitter for people to understand that that might be new for them, but how is it working in, in Native communities? Yeah, so packing and cracking is just tools used by um, legislators to shape their districts in ways that uh, benefit them or their political party. And it's a way of taking either minority or majority communities and manipulating them so that they don't have political power so, or minimizing their political power. So you say that, you know, uh, we saw, for example, in um, San Juan County, Utah, Nevada, or excuse me, not Nevada, the Navajo Nation in San Juan mm -hmm. County, uh, made up 51% of the county there. And yet, out of the county commission, they had three seats, and only one of them was Navajo, because all of them were packed into one district, right? So you mm. stuck all the Native voters in one district, and then you had two uh, non-Native districts, which meant that deciding vote was always the non-native, despite the fact that natives had 51% of the population, right? And, uh, you know, after some litigation by the Navajo Nation there, uh, which was fought tooth and nail by San Juan County, um, the, the court ended up having to redraw those districts. And just this last year, they ended up um, voting to uh, 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 make it a majority Navajo um, County commission. 
um, which has significant impacts for the allocation of resources, significant impacts for, for example, the Bears Ears National Monument is in uh, that county, or you know, part of it is in that county. And prior to the Navajo Nation um, members having a control of the commission, the commission had come out against the Bears Ears National Monument. Then the county commission uh, ended up reversing course and being supportive of the monument. And so these kind of power, uh, you know, all make a difference um, in the everyday lives of community members. And so uh, the other, so that's that's packing. The other one is cracking, and we saw that in the Yakima Nation, where you know individual, you know, you have a you have a certain population, and you crack them so that you know instead of amassing enough power to make you know to have your own uh, district or have something where you would be able to to vote in a member. Um, half of your members are off in uh, another district that has the majority of a different type of composition of people versus the, uh, and the other half is in a different uh, group. And so your political power is diluted and you never have a representative that represents you. And there we had some really uh, disheartening testimony about how, you know, a native member uh, ran for office and people from outside of the district, um, you know, that had been cracked were writing in his name. Uh, into uh, the their ballots because they wanted to vote for him and didn't understand um, that they had been cracked um, and so that their community wasn't cohesive and that they weren't able to vote for him. Yes, that is very painful to hear. And and uh, it's frustrating because one of the, the things when I was reading the report, um, I realized that this is a conversation I'm not seeing in the news. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that I look for these type of conversations and I'm not seeing them. The only time that I saw some reporting um, on Native communities and voting was Rachel Maddow. And I think it was because there was one polling location that was getting moved so far out of town that it was controversial. But other than that, I'm not seeing that. Yeah. Why do you think the media is not grasping to com have these type of conversations? Because we know that Native communities like Black communities are being disproportionately impacted by COVID, and um, they're going to be hurt also by the voting structure. Where, does your law group get um, asked to do interviews? Where are you seeing, why are these voices not um, being represented in media? Well, I think it's a vicious, vicious cycle, right? Obviously, I think political power um, uh, begets attention in a lot of ways, right? We have uh, this year, uh, there was the election of Sharice Davids and Deb Haaland, the first two Native American congresswomen, which led to an avalanche of attention by virtue of the mm -hmm. fact that they were able to be elected. Now imagine yeah. the type of attention you would have if you actually actually had proportionate representation, right? right? They would be able to elevate their issues, um, you know, and, and have kind of those kind of conversations. Um, on mm. the national scale, I think that it is a little frustrating, obviously, that, you know, we aren't getting the kind of sustained attention that, that I think our issues deserve. But I will say mm -hmm. that this is a area ripe for attention, even if you don't care about Native Americans. And the reason is that Native Americans are, uh, you know, cusp voters in many critical states across mm -hmm. the nation. So if you care about the outcome of the election in Wisconsin or the outcome of the election in Michigan or the outcome of the election in Nevada or Arizona, Native Americans 
compose enough voters to uh, push that election either direction. And, you know, mm -hmm. I'm from the Native American Rights Fund. I don't really care how people vote. I care about mm -hmm. them having their voice and pushing mm -hmm. that election in a way that gets them attention, resources, and uh, political power. And so, you know, at the end of the day, those votes are sitting out there. They're sitting out there. Mm -hmm. They are not having the opportunity to be fairly cast. And if they mm -hmm. did, they would have the ability to uh, change the outcome um, of many elections across the country. And I've said this a couple of times today that voting rights should be a nonpartisan issue. It shouldn't yeah. be something. And, and so to me, it is also frustrating that uh, I've seen um, a lack of outreach on both sides. I'm not a both siderism type of person. I know that there's one side that's disproportionately harming other people, they're not. But I'm also seeing a lack of engagement as well. So two, two last questions. You've been wonderful. I love talking to you. I, would, I could pick your brain all day long. One, I want to know what else in this report would you want people to know about that you'd like to bring attention to? Again, I'm going to post a link for it on my Twitter page so people can peruse it um, because it is so detailed uh, of, of what you all found. And even in the report it said, we were shocked to find, right? So you, it was like, this was also news to you, know, yeah, to you all. I mean, so. I think the, the depth and breadth of these issues was shocking. And really quick, before we pivot away from both sides, right? So again, sure, sure. I, I don't care about both sides. I just want to make yeah. that clear. But I will say, yeah. you know, like you say, you know, Democrats for a lot of times say, you know, we don't have these issues. I've talked to a lot of de Democrats in different states and they don't conduct voter registration drives on Indian lands. A lot of times because they are intimidated, they don't know the right person to talk to. They don't know the right person to contact. NARF can be an intermediary to, uh, if there's a Democrat or Republican that wants to do a voter registration, get out the vote drive, contact NARF, contact NCAI. We can be those bridges to the community to make, so that you can put your resources into those community if you want to, um, uh, you know, get those votes out. So that's that's one thing I want to say, because I just want advocates to know on any side of the aisle that it can be intimidating dealing with Indian country. You can call and you're not going to get your call returned. Uh, you can, you know, Native Americans have distrust of outsiders for very good reasons. And so, uh, you know, we're here to try and facilitate those relationships as much as possible so that we can, you know, get resources onto reservations. Um, so if you're interested in that, please reach out to NARF or NCAI. We can help with that. The other I will thing post that as well. I will, okay. I will post that. So thank you for saying that. Please yeah, continue. Yeah. Yes. The other thing that um, I want people to know, I think in Indian country, which was not shocking to those of us that know Indians and know Indian country, but that racism is alive and well. It's alive and well in, I think, um, very overt and uh, casual ways. <laughs> so there are people that uh, don't realize, you know, the, the truth is, is that the way our electoral system is set up is that county officials are the ones that are often the ones that have this enormous power over the way that your election is gonna be conducted. Right, the way that you're going to get your ballot is in the hands of a county individual. That county individual is usually a local person that is, in the case of Native Americans, a descendant of a settler that lives in a border town to 
uh, a uh, reservation. And they have right. deep, casual, entrenched racism towards Native Americans. We heard mm-hmm. um, officials make really casual remarks. We even heard sort of this benign racism where, for example, an elderly poll worker with good intentions, the nicest, sweetest old lady went to go talk to, 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 to try and conduct the, the, the uh, election, the, be a poll worker and said, you know, where can I sit to be safe? Um, I, I don't want to be around the drunk Indians, you know, where, where can I, you know, where can I be safe during this whole thing? And, you know, she was saying this to a Native American who was, you know, mm-hmm. in the community and was like, well, um, and, and these kind of attitudes mean that the interaction that Native Americans are having when they're casting their ballot is often hostile. And that's where you, a local person that cares about uh, get out the vote can make a difference. If you're poll watching anyway, think about the way that you're presenting to uh, Native Americans, you know, be that voice that's welcoming as opposed to uh, the voice that is, uh, you know, we saw people stop and stare and just, um, you know, when people came in to cast their ballot. And then we saw also the state use resources. So we had a lot of reports of police intimidating Native American voters. We had a, um, a, a poll location that was inside of a sheriff's office. We had another, you know, a, a put police patrol car um, on the reservation. The one road between the reservation and the polling location has a police car on election day checking plates as everybody goes by, right? And those kind of things make it just really difficult um, for people to actually engage in the political system. So there are mm. overt um, racist acts that keep Native Americans from voting alive and well today. So that is horrifying. I had never even thought you could put a polling station inside a police. Sta- that's, uh, that's wild. Okay. So I, I will say this as one of my, my last question is um, we have 99 days before the election. I want people to start thinking about um, policy um, and voting rights as policy. Um, How can non-Native people help bring attention to these issues without the savor, you know, like being like uh, a say, you know, I'm coming, you know, (laughs) I'm speaking for you. We don't want any of that. How can we be um, bringing attention to some of these issues um, during COVID? I love that you said that about poll workers. I think that's a wonderful concrete idea that people can wrap their heads around. Um, I would love to know any other suggestions. And um, is NARP also for people to call if they're a a native voter and they're having issues and they Okay. All right. So I want to make vote at narf.org. You can email vote at narf.org at any time if you're having, if you're facing discrimination, Um, or if you observe discrimination, uh, please email vote at narf.org. We will uh, look at that email. Um, There's also, uh, I think, specific legislation. Um, There's the Native American Voting Rights Act in Congress um, that I think you know we would love to see passed. Mandates polling locations on the reservation. It mandates registration opportunities on the reservation. It mandates um, you know equal access to early voting. Um, The other thing is just having equitable or, or advocating for equitable access to early voting and voting opportunities on Native lands is something that you know somebody could please do. The other thing is, I think it's becoming increasingly popular uh, to sort of 
prohibit ballot collection. So saying these like there's these new ballot collection laws that are popping up. Those are devastating to Indian country because we have to travel vast distances to pick up and drop off our ballots. And so we oppose ballot collection bans um, all over. I think the uh, term that they try to say is ballot harvesting. We're just trying to overcome, we're over, trying to overcome, uh, you know, distances. So ballot collection bans are really troublesome. So if you see those pop up in your legislatures, please fight against those tooth and nail. Um, and then uh, just making sure that if your state is considering absentee balloting, keep in mind that those that does not work in native communities and that you need to maintain in-person voting options. So fight not just for in-person, not for not just for voting access, but for excuse me, for absentee voting, but also for in-person early voting and same-day voting opportunities on uh, Native American lands. Okay, well, that was all excellent advice, and it's interesting to see just how our communities all cross over on so many issues, because the disability community, there needs to be an aspect of in-person voting. For a lot of Black communities, they don't trust uh, we don't necessarily trust our vote's going to be counted, so we want to have the option to go vote in person. Exactly, you know what I mean? So there is a, there's a joint uh, collective action here. So I just, I, I thank you so much for, for giving us this information. I'm going to share this report. Um, I'm going to share the, uh, and you're not really on social media either, are you? No, I should be. No, no, I find your handle. Like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, it's one of those things. Busy people sometimes just don't have to. No, listen, I feel that I'm busy, but I, I live on social media. Okay. But I, I want them to know that they can follow your organization online. Um, I believe I started following. I didn't know I wasn't already following you all. Nurse. Right. So I'll make sure to send people to, to the social media page. It's Great. really been a pleasure speaking to yeah. you. Um, you're a wealth of knowledge. Thank you all for commissioning such an amazing, comprehensive report. I really hope I'm followed by like Ali Veshi and all these MSNBC reporters. So I got to tell them, uh, why don't you all read the report and invite my Jacqueline on and just talk about this because you're you're like ready to go. You're you're show business ready. You're ready oh, to thanks. discuss these issues. No, I mean it. I mean it. We need to have more of these conversations immediately. And I hope I shame them all today because we need to have these conversations, especially in the next 99 days. So I, I really appreciate your time. Thanks yeah, so well, much. Thank you so much for bringing attention and for being so inclusive. Uh, I think it's amazing. And, uh, you know, everybody go vote. You know, it's, yes. that's what it is. It's, if you're native, uh, it, it doesn't mean you're anti-sovereignty. It means that you're seizing your political power. So go vote. I love oh. that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you, you're like so quotable. I'm, I'm bringing all these quotes today on Twitter from you. Great. Thank you so much. You so I wish much. you well. I know it's going to be a tough next 99 days, but I, yep. you know, I wish you, I wish you strength during this time to make sure as many native votes are counted. Um, and I appreciate, and I appreciate your work. So thank you thank so much. You. Appreciate you too. Take care. Thank you for listening to this special season of Obscene, election coverage and voter information. 